Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 282, Does the Bible Teach That God is a Trinity? Cole Tuggy Dialogue, Part 1. On December 9th, 2019, I have the privilege of dialoguing with Pastor Sean Cole about this question, Does the Bible Teach That God is a Trinity? We were invited to do this on the YouTube program called The Gospel Truth, hosted by Marlon Wilson. I enjoyed my dialogue with Dr. Cole. We listened to one another, and the discussion was free of the sort of Athanasian contempt that typically mars dialogue between Trinitarian Christians and Unitarian Christians. Thanks to Marlon Wilson and to Dr. Sean Cole for letting me use the audio. I've cleaned it up for these podcasts and made the best I can out of it, and I think you'll find it informative. We'll start then with our two brief self-introductions, followed by our 10-minute opening statements. Sure. I'm uh, Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I have a doctor of ministry in expository preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I also am an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and systematic theology at Colorado Christian University. And back in April, I released my first book, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. So I am a local pastor at heart. I'm not an apologist or a formal debater, uh, but I love to discuss theology. Yeah, my name is Dale Tuggy. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I ended up getting a PhD in philosophy from Brown University in 2000, and then I went and taught at the State University of New York at Fredonia until about 2018. And I taught a lot of philosophy of religion, history of philosophy, metaphysics, religious studies, and I started to get interested in uh, competing views about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit probably back around 1997 or 98. I've been thinking about it ever since. I've quit academia now, work a non-academic job, and I'm happy to live in Middle Tennessee, where my family and I attend Higher Ground Church, which is in the Church of God General Conference denomination. And I still work on some academic stuff, uh, some half-written books, and some academic articles and things like that. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right, so the question is, does the Bible teach that God is a trinity? Dr. Sean Cole, you are arguing the affirmative, and Dr. Del Tuggy is arguing the negative. So, Dr. Sean Cole, with that, can you go ahead and give a quick 10-minute opening statement? Sure. I want to thank you again for inviting me to be part of this discussion. Um, I consider it a privilege to be able to discuss these topics. And so, I am coming from the positive assertion that the Bible does clearly teach the doctrine of the Trinity— and if I'm going to describe the doctrine of the Trinity, I feel like I need to give some definitional statements as to what I mean by that. So I want to present four key definitional statements that I believe espouse the orthodox view of the Trinity that's been confessed by the majority. Assertion number one is that God is one in his essential being or nature. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so when this passage describes the Lord as one, 
It means that not only that God is the unique king above all other so-called gods, but that he's also the one singular God. The Lord who reveals himself as one signifies his uniqueness as well as his singularity. Numerically, there's one God. Uniquely, there's only one God above all other gods. And sovereignly, there's only one God who is creator and ruler of the universe. My second assertion is in this one divine being that is God, there are three distinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are not three individuals that are alongside of or separate from one another, but they're not three gods but three distinct persons who share the same essence or being as the one true God. Uh, Number three, all three persons share equally the undivided essence or being of God, which means that all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal in essence. In other words, there's no subordination, there's no hierarchy in the essential being or nature. Uh, This has historically been called the ontological essence of the Trinity. And then number four, uh, there are certain personal attributes and functions and roles by which the three persons are distinguished from one another in the Bible. This has historically been called the economic function of the Trinity. And so while distinct in function and role within redemptive history, again, this does not mean that there is a hierarchy or a subordination in the essential essence or being. I do want to make a very key assertion that I hope our audience understands, and that is just because there is a difference in function or role that we see described in the Bible does not necessarily mean that there is subordination or inferiority of nature or essence. In other words, just because the Bible clearly teaches differing roles for each of the persons of the Trinity and how they operate in time and space and creation and redemptive history— does not conclude logically that there must be a subordination of that eternal essence or being. And so we really need to get our language clear. And so I'm I'm hoping to be clear in my language because we often impose ideas on God that sometimes come from corporate America or the military, which operate with flowcharts and chains of command and thinking that the Father is somehow more superior than Jesus, or Jesus is subordinate to the Father, or the Holy Spirit is inferior to the other two persons. And again, all three persons of the Trinity share equality and eternality, the same substance or essence or being as the one true God, while in function and role, the three persons perform differing tasks or ministries. I'll give you an example. From all eternity, the Father decided to send the Son. The Son willingly agreed to be sent by the Father. Uh, The Bible teaches that Jesus doesn't send the Father to earth, but instead the Father is the one that sends Jesus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit after his ascension back to the Father. And so even though the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share equality and eternality and power and glory and essence, and there is no hierarchy or subordination in that shared oneness as God, nevertheless, each person plays a distinct role or function or ministry and how they accomplish our redemption. And so I want to just address maybe a false assumption that sometimes I hear many Unitarians make. I'm not sure if Dr. Tuggy will make this. I'm just going to bring it up and in my um, initial opening here, just to lay my cards on the table and to just espouse what I think may be a false assumption. They would sometimes say that for the Son or the Holy Spirit to be truly and fully God, 
they must do the exact same things as the Father does in the exact same way that the Father does it. The differing roles of each person that we see clearly taught in the Bible help us distinguish between the three persons so that we can clearly see that the Bible does teach that the Father does things distinct from the Son, and the Son does things distinct from the Spirit. The three persons do different things, very clearly taught in the Scriptures. But that does not conclude logically that the Son nor the Spirit are somehow inferior or subordinate to the Father in essence or in being. And so I could throw out a smattering of verses, shotgun style, and try to have my opponent respond to a bunch of different texts. But what I hope to accomplish is I would like to stick with a few key texts, and I really hope that we engage in actual exegesis of text. Again, as I said in my introduction, I'm not an apologist. I don't consider myself a philosopher. I'm not an expert in church history. Um, I am a local pastor. Um, I do have a doctorate from Southern Seminary. Uh, but I do engage in biblical exegesis on a weekly basis, working through texts. And so the doctrine of the Trinity does not come from the Athanasian Creed or from the confessions of our faith, although these clearly do articulate the doctrine in a succinct and understandable way so that we can understand and defend the Trinity from error. What I'm asserting is that the doctrine of the Trinity emerges directly from the inspired text of Scripture. And so I hope in this dialogue, I can provide a positive exegesis of a few key texts and then allow my opponent, Dr. Tuggy, to respond to those texts and provide his own exegesis. Uh, what I hope doesn't happen, and I'm not sure this is where we'll go, but I hope we don't engage in a historical debate about differing views of the church fathers or that we debate different theories or views uh, what I think would be most helpful to the audience would be to walk through key texts and see what the Bible teaches. And so what I'd really hope was that, the, that our audience would be able to follow along with each of us with an open Bible, clearly see with their own eyes the key arguments, the key teachings that the inspired biblical authors make, and then come to their own conclusions based upon the authority of Scripture. And the doctrine of the Trinity is vitally important to our lives as believers in Christ and impacts how we actually obey the Great Commission. I think everybody knows the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, making disciples, declaring the gospel to lost sinners, means that we must be faithful in our proclamation of who God is. Um, Jesus is very clear in the Great Commission that we baptize new believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, what does this mean? Who are these three persons? Is this simply one God with one name? And are there three distinct persons? Is the Father the only one who's truly God? Is Jesus and the Spirit subservient? Are they created beings? Um, the answers to these questions not only help us defend the doctrine of the Trinity against what I believe would be error, but ultimately it impacts the salvation of our own souls because we do not want to worship a false god. So the issue here is more than just a philosophical debate. Uh, what's at stake is the very nature of God, uh, the very nature of our salvation, uh, the issue of idolatry. In other words, what we believe about the Trinity has eternal implications. And I pray that the audience will clearly see that importance 
and they would understand from the inspired text of Scripture God's truth concerning this vitally important doctrine. And that concludes my opening statement. All right, Marlon, thanks for hosting this. Thank you, Dr. Cole, for being willing to take part in this discussion. In my view, following Jesus requires that we adopt his teaching and the teaching of his hand-picked apostles. When their teachings clash with later traditions, even mainstream and prestigious traditions, it seems to me that we Protestants have to side with the earlier teachings. So that's my basic Protestant assumption that's led me away from Trinitarian theology. Through about two decades of study, I've learned that the Trinity is not one theology. Rather, there's a family of theories about God, which tell us how to interpret council-mandated language about God the Father, His Son, and His Spirit. These competing Trinity theories are different ways of interpreting the required Trinitarian language about three persons who share one essence. Both of those terms are ambiguous, persons and essence, and different Trinitarians understand them in incompatible ways. Time is going to prevent me from explaining the differences between these interpretations in my opening statement, but if you're curious, you can consult my book, What is the Trinity? As we dialogue later, I'll be interested to hear more about what Dr. Cole thinks it means to say that God is a trinity of three persons, and also why he thinks this theology best fits the New Testament. It took a lot to drag me away from what at first looks like an overwhelming consensus of Christian mainstream thinking about this. First step was I saw that the consensus is more verbal than substantial, and I saw that the mainstream has changed through time, mostly in the first four Christian centuries. It was long-standing disagreements between Trinitarians which drove me back to a more thorough re-examination of the New Testament, and I was shocked to learn that there is no theology there of a tripersonal God. So I'm only willing to swim against the mainstream and to argue for further scriptural reformation of post-biblical traditions because I can now clearly see that biblical theology does not feature a tripersonal God. The Old Testament teaches that there's only one God who goes by the personal name Yahweh. The New Testament teaches that this God is the Father. Various passages call the Father the only true God, the one God, the one who alone is God. These amount to an explicit assertion of Unitarian Christian theology. The one God is not the Trinity, but rather a single who, namely the Father, and no one else. As Paul says, for we Christians, there is one God, the Father. The same one is the God of the Jews. Thus Jesus says to his Jewish opponents, It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say, he is our God. The Father is the God of the Jews. In the New Testament, Jesus is not God the Son, is not the God-man, not presented as an eternal second divine person of the Trinity, but he's rather supposed to be the unique Son of God, a real man who is God's Messiah. And talk of God's Spirit in the New Testament is, on the whole, basically like what we see in the Old Testament, where God's Spirit is not someone in addition to God, although in the New Testament there are a few passages in which God's Spirit is strongly personified. So that's led to some confusion down the line. This New Testament teaching about God, his human son, and his spirit is neatly encapsulated in the words of the martyr Stephen. So Luke writes that Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, that's the Father, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, Paul writes that there is one God and then there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And by God, he means the Father. 
In addition to the one Lord Jesus, Paul teaches that there's one God and Father of us all, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. These statements clearly presuppose not only that the Father is divine, but also that the Father just is God, that the Father and God are numerically one, the one just is the other. If you say, I agree with that, that the Father just is God, but I think the Son also in the same way just is God, then you're committing to the Father being the Son and the Son being the Father, because it's self-evident that things which are numerically identical to the same thing must therefore also be numerically identical to one another. So if the Father just is God, the Son just is God, it would follow that the Father just is the Son. And that's a disaster for New Testament interpretation. No Christian should want to say that the Father died on a cross or that the Son sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We know that the Father and Son are different, so we can't confuse the two together. Now, I know that many presuppose, like I always used to growing up evangelical, that there is some Trinity theory that's taught in the New Testament. But let's be clear about how some such threefold triune God theory is supposed to be there. I take it we'll agree that the Trinity is not explicitly taught in the New Testament. There is no passage that says God is these three persons. I believe Dr. Cole's view is probably that it's implicit, that if you just look at a few passages here and there, you can deduce the Trinity from what the Bible actually says. I don't think that works, but we can talk about that. A more sophisticated view that some scholars take now is that a Trinity theory isn't explicit or implicit in the New Testament, but it's supposed to best explain what is and is not said in the Bible. And I have considered many Trinity theories, uh, but I think in the end, a Unitarian reading of the New Testament fits it better. So I think it better explains what is and isn't said there. I just want to briefly mention four facts very often, Unitarian Christians are accused of just assuming uh, Unitarianism, you know, like we have uh, Unitarian goggles welded onto our faces and we just can't imagine the Bible any other way. Well, that's kind of ridiculous in my case. I mean, I started this off trying to find a defensible Trinity theory, a defensible way to understand those statements. But also, you can see we're not just assuming it when I base my case on the following four facts. So these are facts which are hard to fit together with a Trinity theory and which makes sense on my view, which is that in the New Testament, the one God is the Father. The first fact that you can observe in the Bible is that there is no word in the New Testament or the Old Testament which was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. You don't see the word Trinity there, sure, but more importantly, you don't see the idea of a triune God there, and there isn't any term or phrase of any kind that was then understood to refer to a triune God. So why should we think the idea is there? Well, I say it's not there. I say New Testament theology is Unitarian. The chance that the authors are Trinitarians and don't have a word to refer to the triune God is just vanishingly small. In the New Testament, the word God almost always refers to the Father. It never refers to the Trinity. This is what textual scholars say. And it very rarely, if ever, refers to the Son or the Holy Spirit. Conservative scholars will say there are as many as eight passages where the Son is referred to as God. I'd say there's probably less than that, but maybe we'll talk about some of those. Third, the main and ultimate object of worship in the New Testament is the Father. You don't see the Trinity worshipped. You do see the Son worshipped, and it says, to the glory of God the Father. So there are two objects of worship there. There's God, and then there's the Son of God. There isn't the Trinity, and there isn't the Holy Spirit. So it's not what you'd expect to see if these authors are Trinitarians, but it is what you'd expect to see if the one God's the Father who raised and exalted his Son to his right hand. 
The fourth fact that you can see in the New Testament, which I think uh, fits better with my theology than with any Trinity theory, would be unembarrassed, unqualified claims which imply that the Son is less than fully divine. So we don't think God can die. We think God's essentially immortal, but Jesus dies. We think God uh, couldn't fail to know something. We think God is essentially omniscient. Jesus doesn't know the day or hour of his future return. He tells us. God, we think, is eternal and never came into existence. Jesus was begotten in his mother Mary, as it says in Luke 1. And we all know that ancestors exist before their descendants. Jesus is a descendant of David. David's his ancestor, so David and many others in Jesus' lineage existed before him. To summarize, the only God is the Father. That's a clear New Testament teaching. That the one God is the Trinity. Such theories are just inferred by what I consider very dubious arguments. And historically, you see this idea of a triune God, and you see people using the word God to mean the Trinity, the tripersonal God. You see that around the time of Augustine. You don't see it, say, in the 100s or the 200s. God can't be both the Trinity and the Father alone, so we have to pick one over the other. The conservative thing to do, the Protestant thing to do, is to side with Scripture over later confusing traditions. In my view, the apology of Jesus and his apostles can stand on its own without help from battling bishops of the 4th century, and they're still difficult speculations. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Marlon Wilson turns it over to Dr. Cole and I for some open discussion. Now we'll be moving into our 60-minute, basically a discussion conversation, and you guys will be self-moderating, so I'll be keeping time in the background. It is y'all's show now. Y'all on your own. <laughs> go ahead. Go for it, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cole, before we get into the passages that you want to talk about, and I'm happy to do that, I've come to the views I've had by agonizing over the passages for a very long time. So I, I kind of doubt that it'll surprise me which passages we're going to talk about. But you gave four definitions to start off. And I was wondering if you could just clarify what you mean by uh, persons when you say God is three persons. You know, some Trinitarians would say that the persons of the Trinity are not persons in the modern sense. People like Bart and Rahner have suggested that, you know, maybe mode of being or something would be more accurate and less misleading than person. And they seem to think it's kind of God living his life in three ways or something like that. Whereas others, you know, clearly think they're three individuals, they're friends, you know, the eternal dance of divine love and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Rahner and Bart, I, I don't agree with their assertions or conclusions. One of the things that we have to guard against is the doctrine or the, the heresy that I would call of modalism. And I'm pretty sure as a Unitarian, you're probably not a modalist in the sense that the three persons are three modes of being. I give an example that um, of modalism, kind of like Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is one man, but he puts on the mask and plays Batman. So it's one man playing two parts, even though he's still one man. 
modalism is one God playing three parts or three modes. Um, I don't believe in modalism or I don't understand the distinct persons to be modes or manifestations. A lot of theologians I've discussed this with, they think what's bad about modalism is that the persons come one after the other. So first you have the Father, then you have the Son, then you have the Spirit. Or even in your Batman example, you know, the guy isn't Batman and Bruce Wayne at the same time, but he like alternates. Some would say, yeah, the modes, they're all just at the same time. They're all, or they're all in timeless eternity. One of those, would that make it better? You still reject it. No, I think there are three distinct persons. And when we think of persons, we don't need to think about somebody with a human body because Jesus is the only person of the Trinity that has a physical body. So when I say persons, I actually mean the old language subsistences, which probably our our audience doesn't understand that language, but um, that they are three eternally existing persons that share the same essence as God. The Father's always existed. The Son has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. There's never a point in time where the Father was first in time and then the Son came into existence through an act of creation by the Father or the Spirit came into existence, all three persons have always existed in eternity past as one God, but three distinct persons in fellowship, in harmony. So they're really different selves, like they have interpersonal relationships with one another? Yes. Okay. So God is, in the Old and New Testament, constantly described using singular personal pronouns. And in the Old Testament, he has a singular personal proper name. So which of those three is that one who is the one true God, in your view? You want to say it's all of them, right? Which three what? You know, terms like he and him applied to God or the proper name Yahweh. My view is that those terms should be understood to refer to the Father. In the Old Testament? Well, in both Old and New Testament, yeah. That only the term God refers to Father, or Yahweh only refers to Father? No, not the term God. I mean, the term God and the term Lord are more flexible. We have scriptural examples of people other than God, uh, or beings other than God, being referred to as God or Lord, Adonai or Elohim or Theoi in the New Testament. I'm just asking about when God says, uh, basically says, I'm unique, I'm the only God, there's no other, obey me. You got all these personal pronouns. And it seems to me those in the Old Testament, those refer to Yahweh. But in the New Testament, we find out that Yahweh, well, they don't use the word Yahweh anymore because they think that that's disrespectful. But the same one in the Old Testament, they called Yahweh. In the New Testament, they call the Father. And the Father is the only true God. Right, but just because God was used in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Christ doesn't mean that, that Jesus didn't eternally exist as God and the Spirit didn't eternally exist as God. It's just in redemptive history and through progressive revelation, that truth has been more clearly articulated in the New Testament. Well, I mean, there's a deception problem there, right? If Yahweh, and that's really the Father, if it's the Father saying, I'm the only God that's ever been, you know, I'm the provident God over history, worship only me— I'm the only God. It turns out there are two others who are also God. I mean, why was this first guy saying he was the only one who's God when there are these two others? Just because God disclosed that or did not reveal that in redemptive history doesn't mean that it's not true. As far as understanding monotheism in the Old Testament, Christ had not come in the flesh to reveal the Father, and the Holy Spirit was operating in the Old Testament. But 
just because God is termed as the one true God does not necessarily or logically infer that there are not three distinct persons that also share that same oneness as God. Just because they have different functions doesn't necessarily mean they don't share the same essence as God. Yeah, I mean, I agree that just because some beings have different functions, it doesn't follow that they're different in essence. You know, my wife and I maybe have different functions in marriage or in the family or something, and we're both equally human. I don't want to get into gender wars and all that and how that might relate to the Trinity. So I don't, I don't mean to push that button, but uh, yeah, I agree. And I also agree with progressive revelation, Dr. Cole. I don't have any objection to that. It's just that if it was really the father who was talking and he said, I'm the only one, and then it turns out later there's true God from true God, and then there's also a third one, it doesn't look like he was the only one. So I, I think there's a deception problem there. I wrote an article about this a long time ago. Sure. Well, is it okay if we start getting into some actual text and, and start just kind of working through text? Sure. I mean, I guess you're what I call a three-self Trinitarian or what many would call a, a social Trinitarian because you think the persons, one way to put it is the persons are really persons. They're not just, you know, modes or personalities or something like that. Right. I, so, deny, I deny modalism or that they're three modes or expressions or manifestations, but they are distinct persons. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if you think they're parts, like William Lane Craig thinks that the one God has three personal parts. If you don't think that, I'm not sure I do understand your view. It looks like you have three things, and each one of them is divine, so it looks like you have three gods. No, you can have three distinct persons that share the same essence, or the same being, the same nature, as God. Do you think the essence sharing makes them the same God? Yes. Makes them one, undivisible, unified God in being, but distinct in person. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole brings up the famous opening to John's Gospel. John chapter 1. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you've probably dealt with this, and you said you've looked at this for, for over 20 years. And so I'd, I'd like to just read this, interact with it, and I'd, I'd really be curious to see your exegesis, if you'd allow me just to read it and then maybe give a few comments and then uh, see what your response would be to that. Sure, go ahead. And I'm sure we'll probably have different interpretations. But again, this is for the benefit of the audience. And, and like I said in my introduction, I'd like for people to have an open Bible and follow along with their Bibles open to see how we come up with our exegesis and how these things derive from the text. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, let me just stop right there. One of the things that I would say about this passage of Scripture is that it sounds like Genesis 1-1. I think John does this on purpose because many of the themes of creation show up in the prologue, such as light and life and word. And I would probably—I'm not going to speak for your view, but I would probably say as a Unitarian, you probably see that Jesus was preexistent before the creation of the cosmos, but not eternally existing in eternity past with the Father— 
Um, no, I think the big assumption people bring to this text is that they think that the word here is supposed to be the same person as Jesus, and I don't think it is. In your definition, who or what is the Logos, the Word? That's a great question. And this is probably the first text I would have gone to. I think when I was a Trinitarian, I would just be like, what are you, an idiot? Have you never heard of John 1? And you know, the commentaries will just basically tell you that the Trinitarian reading of this is obvious, but I don't think it is anymore. So the Word of God is a familiar idea in the Old Testament. Psalm 33, 6, it says, by the word of the Lord, he made the heavens or some, some, something like that, the heavens and the earth. Of course, he creates by speaking in uh, Genesis 1. And uh, this idea occurs in a lot of the intertestamental books that are in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, but not the Protestant Bibles. So what I think is going on is there's a personification of the word here which is similar to the personification of God's wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. So in Proverbs 8, like elsewhere in Proverbs, you have this lady who is wisdom, and she's with God there at the creation, seeming to be a helper or something like that in creation. And of course, no competent reader takes this literally, although the church fathers later did. But I mean, she's clearly a personification, right? God's wisdom is not a lady or a goddess or something like that. But, you know, she's calling out to the foolish to listen to her and to gain her above all else. And and then uh, God is portrayed in Proverbs 8 as creating by her you know, the same wisdom that we can pursue. You know, God uses wisdom too. In, in fact, this he's the source of wisdom. So I think when it says, in the beginning was the Word, okay, you're supposed to know that God created by His Word. It says the word was with God, and you're supposed to think of wisdom who's with God in Proverbs 8. And the reason for that is there was a a history at this time of associating God's word and wisdom together. You see this in, uh, again, some of the intertestamental books like Sirach and Wisdom. So they kind of use word and wisdom interchangeably. So word could mean the spoken word, or it could mean the thought that you express when you speak. And so it's natural to kind of move from that inner word, the thought, to the idea of God's wisdom, God's intelligence. Okay, so, so in the beginning in was view, the word. So in your word view, was you with the God, logos, and the word is not, is not a person. Is not mm-hmm. a is not a is not Jesus the eternal Son. It's a personification of or a metaphor for God's wisdom through which He created the world. Am I accurately describing your view? Yes, and if you're going to think it's somebody other than God. Right, God is the Father here, like in the whole New Testament. When you see the word God and there's no special circumstance that demands it's somebody else, it's the Father. That's what textual scholars say. So the word was with the Father. And then the, that next clause is telling you, hey, it's not somebody else. Theos ain't halagos. God was the word. It's really just him. Okay, but now we go back to personifying. All things came into being through him, without him, not one thing came into being, etc. When you look at the pronoun there, the word was with God, that Greek pronoun pros, that little, actually not, not pronoun, preposition, um, that with. Yeah. It seems that the way that John uses that preposition is to denote personal intimacy between two persons, not God. It's like saying, I went to the store yesterday and I had a great time with myself. 
I went to the store and I had my wisdom with me and we did some things together. It almost seems that John uses the language of with to convey another person, the word being Jesus with him in face-to-face fellowship, not just a personification of wisdom or, or some type of inanimate thought of God, but an actual intimate relationship. It's a relational word. Well, yeah, I agree with the point you're making, Dr. Cole, but it doesn't decide between our two readings, because when you personify somebody, you use personal language. You know, if I say I went to the store with my wisdom and she said, hey, I think you should buy this product because it's on sale today. And I said, what that? No, I already have enough of that. Yeah, it's precisely going to be put in terms of a personal relationship when I'm personifying like this. So in wisdom literature, like Proverbs, that the genre would dictate that it is um, metaphorical language. There's a lot of simile and metaphor. This is an, a, a gospel, the fourth gospel. And genre-wise, do, is there anything in the text that would take you to believe that, that John is, is using this metaphorically as opposed to speaking about Jesus being the Word? Um, and, and, and how do you understand down there later on in the chapter when Jesus Christ's name is actually mentioned down in verse 17, this, this truth came through Jesus Christ. Is, is Jesus Christ different than the word that he introduced back yeah. up in verse 1? And what, what accounts for the change in wording from the word to Jesus? Well, God's word is, is that eternal, you could say, divine attribute or divine action by which God created everything. And this eternal thing was best, most fully expressed in the man Jesus. So I think it's kind of looking ahead to Jesus when it zings off to the topic of John the Baptist earlier. But I mean, Jesus is really fully in view, really starting in 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And I mean, that's not to be thought of like a ghost, you know, gaining a body or even, you know, assuming a complete human nature. Again, there's precedent for this type of statement in the intertestamental literature. There's one famous passage in Baruch where wisdom or the Torah, God's wisdom comes down to earth and lives among us. And God's wisdom uh, leaps down from heaven like a warrior at one point. His word comes down. Uh, And it says, all of this is the covenant of the Most High God. This is in Sirach 24. So there's precedent at this time for something like a divine attribute, so to speak, coming on down here into a physical form like a book or a man. You know, in this gospel, okay, Jesus is not called the Word. There's plenty of talk about God's Word, like God's message later on, but he's he's not called the Word. He is explicitly called a man. And, you know, the Father is the one true God, and He's the God of Jesus. This is all explicit in John. Is that a personification of the Incarnation, or is that a literal Incarnation? How does the Word become flesh if the Word is not Jesus? All the Incarnation theorizing leads us in kind of a literal direction here, but when God's Word uh, or God's wisdom comes forth from the mouth of the Most High— you know, you shouldn't really take that literally. When you say she comes down and is is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, it's not that a divine attribute literally turns into a scroll. It's that this eternal reality is now manifest in this physical object. So, you know, the man is a physical being, right? But, but, but let, I mean, let me say one more thing about the understanding of this genre that studies of the Bible of, of things that are... Um, personified, whereas this is actually Jesus, the eternal Son, coming in the flesh. So would you say that the the Word is God or the Word is divine? 
Yes. I mean, either one of those translations is okay. You could say it's God himself. It's not somebody else. Just like the lady in Proverbs 8. So God was with himself, not with the word. Yeah, God, the just word like is, God's wisdom the word is was not, with the word him. Is, it's not literal. Let me say one more thing about interpreting this. I mean, I agree with you that it's obviously the Genesis creation that's involved because it says in the beginning, and it talks about creating all things. Not everybody agrees. There are some Unitarians who think this has to do with the new creation, but I agree this is the Genesis creation. But it's important to me that if you look up all the passages that talk about creation, all the clear passages, all the clear undisputed passages in the New Testament, it's just ascribed to God. And again, God means the Father. So, right, Jesus mentions the Father being the creator. When God created male and female, he says one time. So my, my background assumption is there's really one creator. That's God. That is to say the Father. I don't think he had to do it through a literal intermediary like the Logos theories of the second century and on have it. I don't think he had to have an intermediary to do it for him. I think he did it on his own, like he insists in the Old Testament. And I don't disagree with that God needed to have an intermediary or that God somehow had to have Jesus be the agent through which he created. It's not a matter of necessity. I think it's a matter of, again, economic function that in the creation account, all three persons are working together to bring about the creation in their respective ways. Uh, the Father creates, the Spirit hovers over the water, Jesus is the agent of creation. I think you're making an assumption, you're making an assertion that God is the Father only, when there are clear passages that teach that Jesus is the only begotten God. Um, and so, as a matter of fact, if you go down in that passage of Scripture, I'd be, I'd be curious to know how you interpret that key passage in verse 18 where it says, no one has ever seen God, which you would assume is the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me just tell you how I understand that. I think the ESV captures that probably the best. Uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. Um, it's that monogenes uh, Greek word, one and only, unique, only begotten. I think the New American Standard uses the only begotten God. NIV makes more of a dynamic equivalent. It says the one and only Son, who is himself God. Um, you could say that's probably an interpretive issue there in the translation. And so John does not say that Jesus is the Father, but that Jesus is the only God, and he's made God known, and he's distinct from the Father because he's at the Father's side, and it's clearly named Jesus. We're not talking about the Word, even though I believe the Word is Jesus, but it's saying Jesus Christ is the only God who has made the Father known. So how can you have God the Father being God and Jesus being the only God unless they both are two distinct persons that share the same essence as God? I'd, I'd just be curious to know what your view is on that. Well, I mean, if only this were a clear passage, as I'm sure you know, there's a textual problem here. And some texts have God the only Son and some have the only Son. Some would translate the only begotten God. That's a very strange translation because it seems like on a biblical understanding of God, a God, a God can't be begotten. A God is without origin, is, is essentially uncreated. So yeah, I agree this is talking about Jesus. It's saying no one's seen God. Um, the only Son who's close to the Father's heart has made him known. It's saying that he is the greatest revealer of God, you know, greater than Moses, who's mentioned in the previous verse. I mean, the thing is, again, the New Testament elsewhere assumes that the Father is the one creator. You understand that textual variant there as being yeah. um, referring to the Son, not the only begotten God. 
Yeah, Dr. Cole, I think in making this argument, you're assuming that if Jesus is called God, that shows that Jesus is God or that he's one of the persons in God. That's not right. As Jesus himself says in this book in chapter 10, he says, those to whom the word of God came can be called gods. So that, you know, in Old Testament times, the term Elohim was just more flexible. Uh, But even the term theos in the New Testament can refer to beings other than God. So I just, I don't have that assumption. So even if this is calling Jesus God, God, the only son, like the new revised standard has, okay, that's a pretty unusual usage. But, you know, if you read this prologue in the context of the whole book of John, we know what the punchline is here. We know what the main thesis is. It's that Jesus is God's Christ. And uh, we know that Jesus in this book explicitly says he's a man. He's a man who told you the truth that he heard from God. And he doesn't ever say that he's the same person as the Word, or even I deny that he says that he eternally existed or anything like that. Um, But, I mean, we should probably move on to some of your other texts so we don't spend the whole time on John 1. But just one last point about this, which is, is that if you're a Logos theorist, and Logos theory came in in the middle of the 100s, then you're going to think the kind of interpretation that you're urging is just a slam dunk, like it's really obvious We know that there were mainstream Christians at that time, latter part of the 100s, early part of the 200s, who did not read John this way, apparently. And they thought that the Word was not a, well, not a second God, like the Logos theorists said. They said the Word is another God and a second God and a lesser God. And uh, some of the Monarchian people said, no, no, he's not. There's only one God. There's only one creator. Right. So we know that this chapter was in play at that time. And there were people there at that time who had something like my interpretation. Right, and I understand that. And I'm just saying the clear reading of the text yours, with, the, with the grammar and the prepositions and the, the coming in the flesh and Jesus being the only begotten God, if you trace it all the way through verse 1 through 18, just the plain reading of the text would lead one to believe that the Father and Jesus both share the same essence as God. Jesus has always existed as God. They share intimate face-to-face fellowship with one another as distinct persons. That eternal word, Jesus, became flesh at a point in history, and that he is the unique son who is God. Dr. Cole, I don't know how you get same essence out of this. I don't know how you get same essence, and I don't know how you even get the eternity of the son, because as the early Logos theorists like Justin Martyr pointed out, even if you think the word is the pre-human Jesus, let me grant that for sake of argument, It says, in the beginning was the Word. When is this? This is like when the Genesis creation happened, or maybe like right before the Genesis creation happened. This passage does not require the Word, if you think the Word is the pre-human Jesus, to eternally exist. It just says he was there when the Genesis creation happened. Okay. Or you could say, in the Genesis creation, who was already there before the beginning? God. God created the heavens and the earth before there was a heavens and an earth. I think John is hearkening back to that language to show very clear that in the same way God the Father was there, always existing before the creation of the word of the earth, Jesus, the Word, the Logos, was also there, existing eternally before the creation of the world. I don't grant that. It doesn't say the Logos is Jesus. It says the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that's I agree that not, with that. I is think that, that, that not happened. is that not Jesus though? Who, who came in the flesh? Yes, when the Word became flesh, that's talking about the man Jesus, the Son of Mary. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not to be understood as a literal transition of of a divine spirit basically gaining a body and a and a soul. It doesn't it doesn't say that. You have to bring that to the text. Let's just move on and let the audience kind of digest what we're we're talking about. And I, I guess in fairness, mm-hmm. I I gave a, a passage. Maybe you can. I don't want to dominate and, and give a bunch of passages, but maybe you can you know exegete one or or give one, and I can try to interact with it. This week's thinking music has been the track Mount Fuji by Timecrawler82. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Next week, the rest of my dialogue with Dr. Cole, including some audience Q&A. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.